Hey there, this is part two of two episodes covering the shiny, happy people docuseries on Amazon Prime. If you have not listened to the previous episode, go listen to episode 86 right now, and I'll wait for you right here until you're done. All right, now that I'm sure you're in the right place, I want to give this quick disclaimer to let you know that today's content is not safe for young children. We cover some heavy topics and I'm certain a few cuss words survive the final edit. I also wanted to let you know that we cover the topic of abuse and I understand that this could be triggering for some listeners. Please take care while listening. In early June of this year, 2023, Shiny Happy People Duggar Family Secrets debuted on Amazon Prime. It reached more viewers in its first nine days than any Amazon docuseries. And if you listened to the very beginning of this audio, you know this is the second episode in a two-episode arc. In this episode, JJ Merrick and Christina Kalman continue their conversations with me in which I asked them about the impact of Bill Gothard, IBLP, and ATIA on their life. I'm so grateful for their vulnerability. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. I I don't want to give away, I don't want to spoil anybody on this, JJ, but I have a feeling there came a point in your life where you were like, uh, maybe this isn't the thing. Yeah. So uh, we moved from Fort Worth in 1992 okay. and we went to St. Louis. My dad got another job. So he, we went to St. Louis. He started working there. Um, he had was still working on his dissertation, um, for his doctorate. And so we went to St. Louis for a while. Um, and then in 96, we moved to uh, Kansas city because my dad got a job. He had finally got his doctorate and he was going to go teach as a professor at Midwestern Baptist theological seminary in Kansas city. So we had kind of moved away. Now we were still involved in church. Obviously my dad worked at a church. Then we moved to Kansas city. He was working as an SBC institution. Um, and so we were involved in church, but we moved away from that. Now the things that did seem to stick was the dating and courtship and some of the music stuff. Um, but it just became, we were just hiding it from mom was all it was. And we still listened to music. Like we still listened to all of it. We just wouldn't listen. Like in my teenage years, like I bought CDs and my brother. Did you have a cycle of buying things and going to conference and then coming back and throwing things away, burning them and then (laughs) buying them back again? I've heard this happens. We, we did. And, and you would, you would feel really, there was guilt. Like it's yeah. just guilt all the time. Like, you know, my salvation, like I got saved at least three times. Um, <laughs> my first one, when I was seven and I remember clearly my mom sitting at the table telling me I'm going to die and go to hell. Mm. Like you're going to die and go to hell. If you don't make this decision, I'm just crying. And it was mm. like, again, at a centrifuge camp. <laughs> <laughs> when I was 14, uh, I was like, oh, okay, maybe that wasn't the best one. We'll try this time. Uh, and so church was always there. I was always involved in church. And, you know, my dad was the youth pastor. We, I was, you know, and when your dad's a youth pastor, you're the cool kid because everybody knows you and you're just at church all the time. And that just became it. And we moved away from kind of the IBLP stuff. 
uh, we were still going to conference. I remember one year very specifically going to Knoxville and coming back and going to youth group at St. St. Louis and St. Charles and thinking I want everyone to, cause they, it was always this light in your eyes, your countenance, the light in your eyes, people can tell. And so I remember coming back from there thinking I'm this last week has changed me. And I remember extending down the stairs into the fellowship hall and thinking, and like trying to open my eyes really wide. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember this distinct, like, are they going to notice that my countenance is better? That the light in my eyes is brighter? Nobody did. It didn't. Know, nobody, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> but I, we still went to church and I was very involved. And, you know, when, when we moved to Kansas City, you know, we could actually, I remember thinking we could actually choose our, it was the first time I ever could choose a church because we had always been chosen for us. My dad worked at them. And so actually visiting churches for like the first time in my life and getting to choose my youth group. And I actually went to, you know, a different church than my parents went to. Um, And that was okay with them. And and they went to the one right next to the seminary. And I went to the one that was down the road that I had more friends that went to. And, you know, that was it. I moved away in 2000, got my first job um, and uh, in Nashville. So I moved from Kansas City to Nashville. And it was like, okay, what do I do with this? You know, for me, my entire social being had been wrapped around church. Mm -hmm. And so when you leave that and you go and you're on your own, you're like, well, I want any type of social thing. You know, I need to go to church. So I ended up trying to find one. I, you know, it was weird going as a 20 year old, you're in that, like, you're not in youth group, but you're not, in single adults, some places have, you know, the college and career groups. And I found a place that uh, was uh, Two Rivers Baptist Church. Started going there for a while. Um, that all fell apart, but <laughs> the church itself did. Um, and then it just like, I just stopped going. And I didn't really, you know, it didn't, it didn't, wasn't really a thing for me. And I just was kind of wrestling with like, what is that? And it just kind of went by the wayside. And it's like, you know, I got married. My wife was, um, had, had the kind of the same experience. Her dad was a pastor. We met at seminary um, and we had just kind of talked and, you know, a few years later ended up getting married. She moved down to Nashville and we went to the Baptist church. It was right there. Literally, you know, we went to Creve Hall Baptist church right here by, by our house. It was like one block over and we got involved and I got involved with the youth ministry there and we started doing our thing. And it's like, well, you go to church. This is what you do. I played music. I got involved in the worship bands. We ended up moving over to Rolling Hills Community Church um, for years uh, when they were over in the movie theater. And then when they moved to a new place and we did church, like that's just what we did. I was super involved. I had a lot of skills. I did video. I do all these things, played in the worship band. And that's just what you did. You were constantly involved. That's your circle. That is your community. That is your social everything. Um, we ended up moving to Spring Hill. Uh, we started going to the bridge for a while. And then it was just like, we started that thing like, why are we doing this? Like, what is the whole reasoning behind this? And you know, like, we literally hosted small groups. Like I ran a small group in our, like we were really involved. Um, even at the bridge, like we, we were hosting all that. And eventually it was just like, you know, one day you just end up not going and then the next day you don't go and you don't go, you don't go. And then eventually um, we started to kind of reevaluate 
Southern Baptists and that whole thing. And I'd grown up from the beginning. I knew people in it. I knew all of it. And like, you know, when they say die in the wall Southern Baptists, like I was that I did every RA program, I did everything. And so, you know, that was what was comfortable to me. And so we started to explore and we had an old, uh, one of my, our worship pastors at Rolling Hills, he had left and gone to start an Anglican community church um, in, uh, in Franklin. And so we started looking at like, what are other faiths? Like what, what are other things out there other than Southern Baptists? And we started looking at Anglican and realized like, this is a totally different way of looking at things. Like I, I wouldn't say Anglicans are evangelicals are really not. And so when you take that like constant marketing of <laughs> the evangelical and you look and say what does it just what does it mean to just exist and try to be good people alongside without trying to invite your friends at every element and try to go off and and convert every person what does that mean and it became a much different thing and i was i remember one of our first times we were sitting at redeemer we went to redeemer for a while and father thomas at redeemer was absolutely Mm -hmm. amazing man and um he was like he was like the one thing where we saw, okay, this could be different. And the one thing that hit me when we're sitting in, at, at Redeemer was the fact that the worship band played in a circle on stage facing each other, that, that it was literally their, their chairs are set up in a circle. There's no one up. It was not a concert. It was like, that's all they're, they're doing. And, you know, we started going there for a while and then COVID hit and then, if anyone knows the story, Father Thomas passed away in a car wreck a few years ago, and yeah. it was just devastating. And we haven't been back since. And so it's really just looking at, like, what what is faith and what is, mm-hmm. what is necessary. Um, you know, it's hard for me because as an adult living in Spring Hill, Tennessee, if you don't go to church, you don't have a social circle. Like, that is literally it. Those are the country clubs. Now, I found a little bit in that. I go to... I go to burn boot camp and I, I work out. And so there is a community of people there that is very church like in a different way. <laughs> but you find like you find that most people around here go to church specifically for that. Mm-hmm. And then it and and those things are then it becomes this toxic way of the people who lead it have to continue it and keep it going. And then it just like you have to be able to control those people and keep them. And so then that's when you just throw all this other stuff in to try to keep that. Yeah. And yeah. Going back to IBLP, that's the exact same thing. They had to control them and you had to keep them going. You know, they needed them mm-hmm. to have as many kids as possible. And I remember <laughs> the weirdest thing ever. They had the reversal baby choir that, they would have every year um the children that were the were the vasectomies and the the, the tube tying reversals that happened if you were a result the babies that, that happened after that babies that happened you would then have they had a choir of them i still laugh That's at that thing. because all like all i can think of is michael scott and the snip 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 snip, snip. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did you realize not only were they a little quirky something was going really bad something was really wrong especially when it came to like all the way at the top yeah um I honestly don't think that that happened until maybe even um 10 years after you got out you went to college you weren't you know connected anymore 
I mean, it's, it's so funny because when we used to, uh, there were a couple trips where we would go knocking on doors and hand out pamphlets. One of our, um, experiences in a couple weeks in, in um, Indianapolis, we did that. And like, we always wore, you know, you saw the choir that was our yeah. uniform everywhere we went in public. And so we had our Navy skirts on and our white blouses. We joked even then, like, oh, we look like we're in a cult. Oh, 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 you know? <laughs> we look like we're Jehovah's Witness or Mormons or something. Yeah, yeah. And like, we joked about it. So there was like this funny awareness of like, huh, this is kind of strange. Yeah. But, you know, we just like brushed it off and oh, this is a good experience, whatever. Um, I think I don't remember when I first found the book called a matter of basic principles. Yeah. I remember that one. Um, I read that. I don't remember how that aligns with me meeting. It was a random encounter or, um, somebody came to inspect an office building that we owned and his wife had been in ATI and he noticed some Christian books on my husband's bookshelf. And they started a conversation and they realized that both of us had been in ATI and she had experienced um, more of the abuses. And so mm -hmm. I don't remember having a lot of conversation about it, but I heard enough from her that I was like, oh my goodness, this stuff is really true. This happened. You know, yeah. the abuses at Indy, um, you know, the lot that was the first time I'd ever heard of somebody being locked in a room, forced to pray for days. And I never, like, I don't think that happened on any of my trips. We were too new, like the whole program was too new. And so some of those, whether you call it a system or whether those people just weren't in place yet that ended up um, doing that, I'm not sure. You know, then I was ready to say hmm, that that's a cult, you know? Yeah. And so that's interesting to me that your first reaction to hearing about it wasn't like, oh, no, that can't be true. It must be just an isolated event. This I think we had said that too long. We didn't have any of the stories that are now being told. Yeah. And so for years we did say, oh, it's not a cult. A cult is some, you know, a group that doesn't believe Jesus is God. Um, they live like in a commune. Yeah. Um, they believe that their leader is godlike. And there were many of us who did not worship Gothard, but there was, I don't know. I still think in, in part I was equal had sort of this, I revered him a little bit. Like it seemed like he did know a lot yeah. about people. Like it seemed like he could read minds a tiny bit. And then I was also just a wee bit scared of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think that was, that was, that was some good discernment there. Probably. I never wanted to be noticed Yeah, when I was on any of those trips. You didn't want to be like picked out as like yeah. the next person to yeah. go to headquarters. Exactly. Yeah. Although uh, the more I have read and listened to stories, it really feels like um, Gothard preyed on people and could really identify people that were vulnerable. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, you know, people joked about the young women, these young gals having a look that they looked, mm -hmm. there's a similar look that he liked. But it was deeper than that. A lot of them came from really troubled homes and, and he would know all of these things, right. you know, and really take advantage. And so I wonder if, 
you know, it, it's just, it feels terrible. I mean, it feels terrible to say that you were lucky because you came from a, mm-hmm. a family that was stable. It was a yep. safe home. It was absolutely. But like, there are a lot of people that bought into the system because things were just so very broken in their lives. And it mm-hmm. was, a, it was like, you know, as much as we in the evangelical world, especially in the eighties and early nineties would say we were not into the prosperity gospel. So much of the legalism really was prosperity gospels. Like if you mm-hmm. do these rules, you you know, you will, your life will be better. You know, mm-hmm. maybe we won't say for sure it's a promise, but it's a pretty big guarantee. And, you know, just hanging on to those rules. But, and if, yeah. and the idea that if something bad happened, possibly it was because we weren't doing the things right, or we were doing the wrong thing. We weren't doing enough of the right thing, or we were doing the wrong thing. It wasn't ever just like, some things are just really broken in the world. His teachings influenced all of our Protestant evangelical churches. I think it was such, especially in the the U.S., it was a huge deal. You know, we joke about it now, like the umbrella of authority thing. Yes. And like, it seemed to make sense, right? It looked like it looked safe. And yeah. now, you know, my friends are like, something is really wrong with that top umbrella if it's not working. <laughs> yeah. You need like five umbrellas underneath it. I think those are some of the the teachings that are sort of insidious, you know, like even though um, I didn't want anything to do with the ATI version, you know, of what my young adulthood could have looked like. Yeah. Um, rejected that early on at the age of 19. Um, you know, a lot of those teachings did continue to affect me. And, you know, I, I'm kind of sorting through, like, I don't think my parents taught me this. Like, right. it might have been yes. some of the curriculum, like, but this came from those conferences and this came from, and there was a little bit of like, you'd go home and you'd hear about all about courtship. And I remember coming home and being yeah, like, so dad, you gonna, you're going to find me my husband, you know, and I don't remember the conversation. But I can just imagine, because this is very dad-like, him being like, oh, I think you can find your own husband, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, I'm imagining that's probably what he said. <laughs> and there was sort of this, like, huh. Like, I thought that this was, like, the optimal way to find a spouse. So now I'm confused. Because all the stories that you heard at the conferences and, you know, in the in the youth portions of the conference. Yeah. It, I mean, I think it happens like that from time to time, where we read the books. And then later on, our parents like, I had no idea you read the book. And I had no idea the book even said that. And they you like know? didn't make a big deal out of it. It's just like, no, no, that's, that's not how we do things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I look back like, you know, the only thing I can do is like not put my children through it. Like I, yeah. I, I, I can be the, the chain, the break. Like for me, there was some, the rules that really stuck with us was the biggest one was the dating rule. And it, like, that is probably the one thing that I've struggled the most in my life um, was from the very beginning, you were told you had to court, you weren't allowed to date. And so there was just kind of this like underhanding thing of like, you're not going to have a, a boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, any of that. If I had a boyfriend that would have really thrown them off. Um, but <laughs> uh, you know, not being able to do all that. And so you get later on in your, like I left the house on my own, not having any idea how to do any of this. And just had no way of knowing how relationships worked, you know, that like just even trying as a, as a teenager, especially back in the nineties, that's what you did. Like things are different these days with the kids and they they act differently now, which is great. 
But back then, like you found a boyfriend or girlfriend and that was the way you kind of moved through it. till eventually you realized you wanted to get married and you kind of knew how to date and you knew how to do those things. I had none of that. And it was like, I remember the weirdest thing of my parents, like my mom essentially like saying like, you're never, you know, you can't date, you can't do all these things. And finally I, I got married. And like the first thing she's like, well, when are you going to have babies? Like you do realize like my entire sex education was you handing me James Dobson's tapes um, and said, here you go. Like, <laughs> like I learned the birds and the bees from freaking James Dobson, which that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like you, I'm sorry, lady, you don't get to be a part of this. Like, yeah. this is not something that you, like you may get grandkids, but that's all like, you don't get to be a part of this. And I, that's probably the one thing I've struggled with my entire life. Yeah. It's been that whole thing on like how to date, what to date, what to do. And yeah, still affects me to this day, 43 years later. So, Do you have a relationship with your parents and are, are you able to talk about any of this stuff? So my mom passed away back in 2016 um, okay. and she, she got really bad. Um, they moved to Kentucky. So my dad left Midwestern was, fired essentially given a one-year contract. So go from 10 year to one year, you know how that works. Um, and ended up unemployed in Kansas city. And the only thing he knew how to do was manage restaurants. Cause that's what he did pre mm-hmm. in the early seventies. So he literally managed the A and W slash long John silvers five blocks up the road from the seminary and bless his heart. The, he, he has his PhD doing that because he needed to feed his family yeah. that was still living at home. He did what he had to and finally was able to get a position in, in Kentucky at Clear Creek Bible Baptist College, which was absolutely over the moon that some former Midwest, you know, former seminary professor would come to them. And he's, he's now semi-retired from there, still lives there, loves it, has been there 20 some odd years. Perfect for him. They moved to Kentucky. My mom ends up in a, um, like her just decline was pretty bad. Ended up in 2008 in a nursing home and mm-hmm. then. She had trachs, so she was in respiratory care and finally passed away in 2016. My relationship with my mom was never good. Um, mm. And so it, we realized what she had done to us um, and the way that she was. Um, you know, at that point, I had realized that we were gypped our childhoods because of the fact that they weren't willing to ask for help. Um, and thankfully, there's three older kids because my brother, so there's my older brother and me, and then one, my, my brother's 18 months younger than I am. So there's basically two splits and then my sister and then the two boys, my sister and the two boys, they went to school and they ended up going to, um, things. They went to college. They, they, once they moved to Kentucky, they had played soccer. So they ended up, um, kicking footballs. One went to the County high school, which was a five, a school. And then one went to a, the one, a school in town and played in the band and kicked. Both of them ended up football scholarships. One went to Western Kentucky on a full ride. Um, and the other one went to Cumberland, um, wow. and then ended up as an attorney. Now he's a DA back home, married a, married a hometown girl in Kentucky, loves his life there. Went from, uh, being a, a he's now a prosecuting, he switched sides. So he was a, a defender, a public defender. PD. Sure, yeah. Um, and so he got to go and, and do all that. So I'm ecstatic for them, but you know, realized that it wasn't, until they moved to Kentucky and Kentucky had a lot more social services available to them 
and and had help that would come in and they didn't have they allowed them to go to school and allowed them to do that we didn't get that and so i'm not bitter towards them i mean it's just kind of how that is but i did not go to my mom's funeral so Mm -hmm. i i did not you know my dad had four of them actually he basically did a tour with her ashes because they knew people all over and so wow that's interesting he did a whole tour uh, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, so my relationship with her, there was never really any reconciliation. I don't think there would have ever been any reconciliation. Mm-hmm. The reconciliation needed to be me internally. I've had conversations with my dad. Um, at one point, I think it was after my mom died, I, I, I had gone through some therapy, and part of that was you need to call him, you need to confront him and say, why did you not stand up for us? Mm-hmm. His reply was basically, I'm sorry. We did what we could to survive. Um, it was all we knew to do. And looking back on it now, years later, I realized that's pretty much all I could say. You know, I, I wanted him. But my whole thing was like, dude, you have your PhD and you did nothing to fight for my education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I am where I am today because I I learned it. I self-taught. But like as a programmer, you know, I have problems because I didn't get algebra. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't have the math. I didn't have those things. So there are concepts I have really hard time trying to wrap my brain around in my everyday job because I didn't have those. And, and it comes really easy to people that, you know, at least had basic math (laughs) in high school. And I didn't even have that. Like my kids do stuff now, like my 12 year olds in algebra too, and can do things. I don't even dream. Like I have no idea how to do. So I did confront my dad at some point and it was like, you know, I'm really sorry. I understand. But that was just, that was all we could do at the time. We were just trying to survive. Like there was a lot of things that were not modeled for me that I have to like work through. Now for a quick break. Not long ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, faithful counseling makes it so easy to get started. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Now back to the show. How did all this inform your parenting? If I would have kept making only the minimum payments on my credit cards, my debt would have taken me 47 years to pay off. These are real National Debt Relief customers. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get out of debt by myself. Credit card, medical, or personal loan debt? National Debt Relief negotiates with your creditors to reduce what you owe. National Debt Relief got me out of debt. You could be debt-free in as little as 24 to 48 months. Visit nationaldebtrelief.com to learn more and get started. nationaldebtrelief.com. Because you cannot go into parenting without thinking about how you were parented. I mean, in some ways, I think I'm still sorting through that. I think what happened is I felt like a failure 
a lot of the time, you mm-hmm. know, my kids were active. They weren't like naughty kids, but they weren't the type to sit around and read books for an hour or two. I had, or color even in a high chair for an hour. Like I've had siblings that have kids that do that. And I'm like, what kind of child is that? I did not get one of those. You must not (laughs) have read the right book and done the right things, Christina. Right. Exactly. Obviously I did not read the pearls book (laughs) and my kids did not sit quietly in a row. And so I think I struggled probably struggled with um mostly I just felt guilt I think Mm. like I just can't do this I can't do this good enough you know I mean and I was a stay-at-home mom I had all the time in the world you know to to have my kids at home and to cook good meals and to keep the house clean and it was still very much overwhelming overwhelming to my because of my own expectations for myself and what I had seen modeled probably within ATA like this whole, you know, stair step of all these kids sitting around quietly. How come I can't produce that? Well, yeah. thank God I wasn't abusing them. That's why. Yeah. And one of the really <laughs> sad things is some of them were being abused. I don't know. It was just a progression of realizing that my expectations were flawed. Yeah. And I think there's something about having three kids that just puts you over the edge and you, you give up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. So, uh, What's second best? <laughs> yeah. And I remember, when, I remember when you made the decision to no longer be homeschooling everybody and yes. you said your mom was really encouraging to you. Like, like she didn't shame you for that decision. Like she, yeah. she said it was going to be I, okay. I definitely wanted to talk about that. I know because homeschooling was, oh my goodness. You know, it was just a, it was a big deal. And especially in ATA, it just felt like it was the only option. Like you're throwing your children to the wolves. If you send them government to public school. school. Yeah. Yes. They're going to be brainwashed and all the things. And, um, we got to a point that, you know, we just, I needed to work. I needed to make money. And also my kids had gotten old enough. Once I had a third that was in school, I realized I I can't keep up and I want my kids to have a good education. And so, you know, a bunch of things kind of came together and uh, we sent them to a charter school, actually. Um, Mitchell was in eighth eighth grade and Megan was in seventh and Madison was in fourth. And they all rode the same bus together. It was an excellent choice for that year to be in a smaller school. They weren't so overwhelmed being dumped into, you know, all different schools, all different. That would have been overwhelming for me as well. So that was a really good choice and it was good. And my, yeah, I did talk to my mom about it and I just, I was very scared. I was very fearful. I had never gone to public school. My husband had, um, but like, it felt like a system that I didn't understand how it worked. And so I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to guide my kids through their experience there. So there's a lot of insecurity on my end. And then I did fear some judgment. I have three sisters. Obviously, we all were homeschooled. And I have the oldest kids. My twin sister has kids yeah. 10 years younger. And then my younger sisters still have very small children um, now. And I talked to my mom about it. And she said, Christina, our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is not in our educational choice. Mm-hmm. And um I think I cried because it felt like a burden was taken off of me. And I was like, yep, you're right. You're right. But I think there's a lot of us that need to hear that. Like our faith can never be like 
how our kids turn out yeah. is not really on us. How old are our kids when we realize that? Like, okay, my identity is not tied to my kid's behavior. So what do you think is the value of actually talking about these things? Because some people say, oh, this just makes Christians look bad. Yeah. You know, we should not talk about this. I would say, I think we should talk about it. What do you think? I think so too. I mean, my first reason to talk about it, you know, there were so many years that, um, you know, the lawsuit that happened and there were things that happened way back in the eighties and nothing, nothing was, was done. You know, Gothard was not removed from um, stuff with his brother and stuff ministry. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's gossip within the community. Like, was it actually Gothard and did he just blame it? You know, Mm -hmm. who even knows, but there was stuff, you know, that came out at various periods of time that just got squashed and people were scared and they were manipulated both spiritually and financially. Um, and so my purpose is saying, you know what? Yeah. I did not experience the trauma but I'm, I'm friends with some of the people who are on, there's another documentary coming out Mm -hmm. and I'm not like close friends with them, but like they're friends of friends. They were on some of my trips. Like I recognize these faces and I Mm -hmm. know these names and I have been in ATI recovery, Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. You know, I was aware of recovering grace when it was developed. Um, I was aware of when they were asking for testimonies, um, of, of all the women who had, you know, some kind of inappropriate behavior from Mr. Gothard. Like mm-hmm. I was there present online. And though I can't say that I was there to see it, mm-hmm. I was there to see enough to say, I believe these people, yeah. this happened. We need to believe them and we need to do something about it and not let it happen again. So I think mm-hmm. that there's power in numbers and I'm just one, but I'm willing to add to the numbers. And I think just being aware that cults um, take lots of different forms, you know, I mean, there's lots of different types of groups, both within the church or within the business world. There are so many communities that are cult-like. What are some things that you hope come from people seeing this? Well, for one, I hope that there is exposure of these things do happen behind the scenes. And, and like, you know, this has been a long process of, especially watching Josh Duggar's thing. And I, I, I almost feel bad for the kid. And I mean, he's a man now, but like looking at how horrible he was treated when from the very beginning it's, you know, sexuality is shown as a certain way, you know, he then goes and does a thing that probably, you know, there was stuff that led up to that. There was things that happened up to that. But then after that, literally being told, okay, you're just going to go and we're going to ship you off. You're going to do manual labor and this should fix you. No therapy, no processing of it, but it was the hiddenness and the, the unopenness of what it is that caused him to have that, that they don't want to ever discuss. And then when something comes up, it's got to be hidden immediately because this is going to look bad on the family. What can we do to get this put away? And they thought, okay, well, that's all it needs to do. Well, then that just expands onto it. And he's got this already unhealthy view of sex that, you know, led to, 
you know, you go from, you know, it starts with a porn addiction and then just kind of does and you keep, you keep going and you keep trying to find something more and different. And then it leads to what he, you know, with the, the yeah. SAM, it's like, he was done wrong from, from the early on that led up to this. Now, sure. He should very well known that this is something he shouldn't have been doing, but that whole culture creates that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's that hiddenness of it. You know, looking back now and looking and seeing like Bill, here's Bill Gothard, an unmarried childless man, basically telling all these people to have as many children as possible. And here's how you should live your married life. Yeah. And nobody questioned it. It was, uh, and I, I remember thinking it a few times, but it was always like, well, he's just like Paul. Like, yeah, or like, Jesus. Oh. Yeah, Jesus, true. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What's funny is I don't even think about Jesus and all of this because I feel like Jesus is looking at going, y'all are a bunch of sons of bitches. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a quote. Like, it really, yeah, like it's, it's almost like, yeah, I want to almost want to separate Jesus because I feel like he's just kind of doing this the whole time with his head in his hand. Like, what are you thinking? I think the trying to hide the broken thing is what oh. makes things even worse. And hiding was it like, yeah, because it was like, if you have a child who is quote doing anything out of the ordinary, that is rebellion, you know, and rebellion to them is literally listening to Amy Grant. And it's shame. And, it, you get shamed over it. The oh, parents are shamed. The yeah. kids are shamed. You're doing something well, wrong. And they, I was, um, they talked about the blanket therapy. Um, or would blanket training. Yeah. Um, that was something that was very, very prominent. And for those that haven't seen it, it's literally you put out a blanket and you put the child on the, the, the blanket and you put something of desire, like a toy, and you tell them, don't go get the toy. The child goes out to the toy. You then spank the child. Yeah. And you basically break them down. Like, do I don't even do that for my over dog. And over again. Like, that, we don't even use negative reinforcement with our dog. We do a thing where we do a mat, but he has to choose to go back and forth and that's how you do it. But like breaking the children, but literally that's it from the beginning. Break them down, make it where they realize that everything comes from above and that you are in control of nothing and it just moves on. Mm -hmm. Women are not in control of their sexuality. They are not in control of their purity. That comes from the father all the way up to your marriage or then handed over to your husband, you're literally not in control of your life at yeah. all. And so from that point, then if anything happens outside of that, the hiding has to happen because it breaks the shiny, happy faces, the, the countenance, mm -hmm. any of that, you know? And, and I remember there was a couple of years back where they had talked about abuse and it was the most grossest thing ever, but it was about like how God uses abuse now, I've seen some I of think, that. Oh, I man. think that it's like maybe there's, but you know, the idea being is that it happened to you for a reason that God allowed it to happen. And it's like, no, I can, as a human, take this and make it my thing because it happened to me, but you're not allowed to tell me that these things just happen for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the only way that they can explain bad things happening. Tell me why it's good for our faith communities to actually talk about the hard things and the real ugly, like broken things. Why should we just, I hear this argument that says you are making the church look bad. If you talk about abuse, that's happening. No, Tell me why God, no. Terrible like, argument. 
I mean, the church the church doesn't need to look bad. I mean, it does it's on its own. But like the idea of like we have to be open and honest and we have to be to know that these things exist. Like, you know, I I worked in youth ministry. Like I I I left I there was time before I moved into computers. There was about a two year period. I went to Montana for a couple of months, um, out like the day that I graduated and worked at a church there for a summer and then came back and then worked at a church in Kansas city. And I worked under a guy who event, who is currently in prison in Virginia. Um, and he, uh, was a youth pastor and he ended up messing around with a couple of his kids and ended up in jail. And, you know, he was on, uh, I remember eagerly getting the SBC's, uh, list or you know, whatever. Here we go. Find, find old Jack down there, but he's sitting in, in prison and, and, Virginia. So I've, I've lived that. And what's interesting to me was they, um, in my interview process, I was like an 18 year old kid. And I remember sitting at that table with the, with the search committee or whoever it was and them asking me like, what do I do, you know, about all these things? Like to keep myself, you know, secure because I'm young and all that. And you know, my dad had taught me, Hey, don't be in the room with anyone. You know, you just, there's some security, there's things you need to do. And he was smart. Don't, don't give them rides by yourself. Don't do any of those types of things. Like, yeah, accusations can happen, but you just need to keep it clear and above. Okay, fine. That's, that's great. And they're asking me when the real problem was the actual senior <laughs> youth pastor who would later go on to do these things. Yeah. But nobody talks about that and, and trying to keep that up. And it's like, you can't have some of these people around teenagers doing these types of things without having a very open, honest conversation about it. You know, it's like, and this happens everywhere, like gymnastics. It's a problem. You know, I, I'm a swim official and part of what we do is this, there's a safe swim program because you know, you have coaches hanging around kids in swimsuits and things like things just happen. And so, you know, having these conversations and making sure that there's, there's things in place and that, that we, we make sure that safety is there is big and we need to do that. These are humans. This happens and we have to to keep these kids safe and we have to to keep talking about it. And it's, it's okay. Nobody's going to look bad. You know, the thing that caused it looks bad, but let's fix that. Yeah. It's not the talking about it. That's the problem. Yeah. The problem is there. Talking about it means maybe we have a chance to do something about it. We have a chance to do that. Like this, I think this is a moment we have a chance to either say, that's not us. Right. That's some crazy fringe. Or we can say, some of this is us. And I think there needs to be a solid conversation about what it is about evangelicalism that causes all of this. You know, it's like, it's like the conversation about Josh Duggar we need to talk about what got him up to the point right before he decided to go in there with his sisters. And nobody wants to talk about that of what is it that caused that, you know, this purity culture, all of these things is what's causing all of that. And, you know, nip it in the bud, but you're going to have to nip all of it a lot of times. Well, you know, things that are good are going to stand up to scrutiny. Yes. What's the worst thing that can happen? Right. And it's, yeah. And it, 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 these conversations definitely do need to happen. And 
you know, changes do need to be made, but in realizing these things do happen and it's okay, but what are we going to do to fix it? I like it. Well, I appreciate you giving me some of your time. But yeah, I think the first that I realized um, that the message of God's third was sort of extra biblical. Um, ironically, I had started doing what they used to call was a faith journal. And basically you just journal through, I don't remember if it was the whole Bible or if it was just the New Testament, but I remember getting to the New Testament. And I mean, I had quizzed on various books of the Bible. Yes, you memorized many you verses. Know, like yeah. I had memorized whole sections or at least was very familiar with, you know, yeah. whole books of the Bible. But when you read the gospels, like all in a row, all of a sudden I was like, huh, the rule keepers, Jesus was mad at. Yeah. And he was having dinner with all the people that Gothard is saying that we should run away from. And these people will drag you down. And I was like, mm, wow, I am a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. You know, I came to that realization that this is not biblical this is extra biblical um you know there are no keys to success there is no special knowledge let's get back to jesus i mean i remember um i think in i don't even know what circles but i remember when i was still kind of sorting through some of the gothard teaching And when Jesus would be preached, like the simple gospel, I had this angst in me, like, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. Like that came from ATI, Mm -hmm. that there's this other information that's extra, that's, that's better. That'll give you an even better life. And um, yeah, if Jesus is made smaller, that's never a good, that's never a good thing. Um, Yeah. And so I was you know, that was kind of a a light bulb moment for me to realize Jesus is not enough in this teaching. And he is enough. He is absolutely enough. I think the church that we went to, we helped start it um, in Norwood. And that pastor, he just took everything back to the simple gospel of God loves you, love God, love people. And um, those are the building blocks. And if, if you, if you don't think that those are enough, then that's going to lead you down a really ugly path. And I think that that season was very healing for me. It just brought me back to a simple gospel. And I can't imagine, you know, knowing where my life went. I can't imagine trying to hold on to some of the legalistic beliefs, even about divorce and um, some of those things. Because obviously, you know, my history and my family yeah. imploded, you know, I had better teaching and yeah. I could say, this is not my fault. Yeah. And also I lived in a community that had changed, you know, that supported me and I was not ostracized. I can't imagine that having happened, you know, even 10, 15 years prior, Yeah, you know, I, I would have yeah. been in a completely different place, I think. It's just so crazy. This random part of my life that ended up on Amazon and everybody's talking about it. I know this is hard to believe after two episodes, but I actually have more audio from our conversation. I share that with my Patreon community. So make sure you go to patreon.com slash untangled faith to check that out. 
I want to express my gratitude one more time to JJ Merrick and Christina Kalman. They shared vulnerably about something that deeply impacts them. As always, my hope is that you listen to these episodes and that this starts conversations you have with your friends in real life. So send this episode to your friends and continue this conversation. And if you're new around here, make sure you check out the show notes. I have linked episodes I think you'll be interested in checking out, including the series I recorded about our family's experience with my husband working for and ultimately leaving Ramsey Solutions, the company owned by Dave Ramsey. You can find those links on your podcast app or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I am actually planning on taking a brief break, so you will not see me around here, but I will be continuing to share bonus material with my patrons. So I probably won't see you next week, but I will see you soon.